Chapter 14 of Work, A Story of Experience. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Wendy in Utah. Work, A Story of Experience by Louisa May Alcott. Chapter 14. Which? David. Mr. Power received Christie so hospitably that she felt at home at once and took up her new duties with the energy of one anxious to repay a favor. Her friend knew well the saving power of work, and gave her plenty of it. But it was a sort that at once interested and absorbed her, so that she had little time for dangerous thoughts or vain regrets. As he once said, Mr. Power made her own troubles seem light by showing her others so terribly real and great that she was ashamed to repine at her own lot. Her gift of sympathy served her well. Past experience gave her a quick eye to read the truth in others, and the earnest desire to help and comfort made her an excellent almoner for the rich, a welcome friend to the poor. She was in just the right mood to give herself gladly to any sort of sacrifice, and labored with a quiet energy painful to witness had anyone known the hidden suffering that would not let her rest. If she had been a regular novel heroine at this crisis, she would have grown gray in a single night had a dangerous illness, gone mad, or at least taken to pervading the house at unseasonable hours with her back hair down and much wringing of the hands. Being only a commonplace woman, she did nothing so romantic, but instinctively tried to sustain and comfort herself with the humble, wholesome duties and affections which seldom fail to keep heads sane and hearts safe. Yet though her days seemed to pass so busily and cheerfully, it must be confessed that there were lonely vigils in the night— and sometimes in the morning Christie's eyes were very heavy, Christie's pillow wet with tears. But life is never all work or sorrow, and happy hours, helpful pleasures are mercifully given like wayside springs to pilgrims trudging wearily along. Mr. Power showed Christie many such, and silently provided her with better consolation than pity or advice. Deeds, not words, was his motto, and he lived it out most faithfully, Books and work he gave his new charge, and then followed up that prescription with healthful play, of a sort she liked and had longed for all her life. Sitting at his table, Christie saw the best and bravest men and women of our times, for Mr. Power was a magnet that drew them from all parts of the world. She saw and heard, admired and loved them, felt her soul kindle with the desire to follow in their steps, share their great tasks, know their difficulties and dangers and in the end taste the immortal satisfactions given to those who live and labor for their fellow-men. In such society all other aims seemed poor and petty, for they appeared to live in a nobler world than any she had known, and she felt as if they belonged to another race, not men nor angels, but a delightful mixture of the two, more as she imagined the gods and heroes of old, not perfect, but wonderfully strong and brave and good, each gifted with a separate virtue, and each bent on a mission that should benefit mankind. Nor was this the only pleasure given her. One evening of each week was set apart by Mr. Power for the reception of whomsoever chose to visit him, for his parish was a large one, and his house a safe haunt for refugees from all countries, all oppressions. Christie enjoyed these evenings heartily, for there was no ceremony. Each comer brought his mission, idea, or need, and genuine hospitality made the visit profitable or memorable to all, for entire freedom prevailed, and there was stabling for everyone's hobby. Christie felt that she was now receiving the best culture, acquiring the polish that society gives, and makes truly admirable when character adds warmth and power to its charm. 
the presence of her bosom care calmed the old unrest softened her manners and at times touched her face with an expression more beautiful than beauty she was quite unconscious of the changes passing over her and if any one had told her she was fast becoming a most attractive woman she would have been utterly incredulous but others saw and felt the new charm for no deep experience bravely borne can fail to leave its mark often giving power in return for patience and lending a subtle loveliness to faces whose bloom it has destroyed this fact was made apparent to christie one evening when she went down to the weekly gathering in one of the melancholy moods which sometimes oppressed her she felt dissatisfied with herself because her interest in all things began to flag and a restless longing for some new excitement to break up the monotonous pain of her inner life possessed her being still a little shy in company she slipped quietly into a recess which commanded a view of both rooms and sat looking listlessly about her while waiting for david who seldom failed to come a curious collection of fellow-beings was before her and at another time she would have found much to interest and amuse her in one corner a newly imported german with an orson-like head thumbring and the fragrance of many meerschaums still hovering about him was hammering away upon some disputed point with a scientific frenchman whose national politeness was only equalled by his national volubility a prominent statesman was talking with a fugitive slave a young poet getting inspiration from the face and voice of a handsome girl who had earned the right to put m d to her name an old philosopher was calming the ardor of several rampant radicals and a famous singer was comforting the heart of an italian exile by talking politics in his own melodious tongue there were plenty of reformers some as truculent as martin luther others as beaming and benevolent as if the pelting of the world had only mellowed them and no amount of denunciatory thunder could sour the milk of human kindness creaming in their happy hearts there were eager women just beginning their protest against the wrongs that had wrecked their peace subdued women who had been worsted in the unequal conflict and given it up resolute women with no surrender written all over their strong-minded countenances and sweet hopeful women whose faith in god and man nothing could shake or sadden but to christie there was only one face worth looking at till david came and that was mr powers for he was a perfect host and pervaded the rooms like a genial atmosphere using the welcome of eye and hand which needs no language to interpret it giving to each guest the intellectual fare he loved and making their enjoyment his own bless the dear man what should we all do without him thought christie following him with grateful eyes as he led an awkward youth in rusty black to the statesman whom it had been the desire of his ambitious soul to meet the next minute proved that she at least could do without the dear man for david entered the room and she forgot all about him here and at church were the only places where the friends had met during these months except one or two short visits to the little house in the lane when christie devoted herself to mrs sterling david was quite unchanged though once or twice christie fancied he seemed ill at ease with her and immediately tormented herself with the idea that some alteration in her own manner had perplexed or offended him she did her best to be as frank and cordial as in the happy old days but it was impossible and she soon gave it up assuming in the place of that former friendliness a grave and quiet manner which would have led a wiser man than david to believe her busied with her own affairs and rather indifferent to anything else if he had known how her heart danced in her bosom her eyes brightened and all the world became endurable the moment he appeared he would not have been so long in joining her nor have doubted what welcome awaited him 
As it was, he stopped to speak to his host, and before he reappeared Christie had found the excitement she had been longing for. "'Now some bore will keep him an hour, and the evening is so short,' she thought, with a pang of disappointment. And, turning her eyes away from the crowd which had swallowed up her heart's desire, they fell upon a gentleman just entering, and remained fixed with an expression of unutterable surprise, for there, elegant, calm, and cool as ever, stood Mr. Fletcher. "'How came he here?' was her first question. "'How will he behave to me?' her second. As she could answer neither, she composed herself as fast as possible, resolving to let matters take their own course, and feeling in the mood for an encounter with a discarded lover, as she took a womanish satisfaction in remembering that the very personable gentleman before her had once been. Mr. Fletcher and his companion passed on to find their host, and with a glance at the mirror opposite, which showed her that the surprise of the moment had given her the colour she lacked before, Christie occupied herself with a portfolio of engravings, feeling very much as she used to feel when waiting at the side-scene for her cue. She had not long to wait before Mr. Power came up and presented the stranger, for such he fancied him, never having heard a certain episode in Christie's life. Mr. Fletcher bowed with no sign of recognition in his face, and began to talk in the smooth, low voice she remembered so well. For the moment, through sheer surprise, Christie listened and replied, as any young lady might have done to a new-made acquaintance. But very soon she felt sure that Mr. Fletcher intended to ignore the past, and finding her on a higher round of the social ladder, to accept the fact, and begin again. At first she was angry— then amused, then interested, in the somewhat dramatic turn affairs were taking, and very wisely decided to meet him on his own ground and see what came of it. In the midst of an apparently absorbing discussion of one of Raphael's most insipid Madonnas, she was conscious that David had approached, paused, and was scrutinizing her companion with unusual interest. Seized with a sudden desire to see the two men together, Christie beckoned, and when he obeyed, she introduced him drew him into the conversation, and then left him in the lurch by falling silent and taking notes while they talked. If she wished to wean her heart from David by seeing him at a disadvantage, she could have devised no better way, for though a very feminine test, it answered the purpose excellently. Mr. Fletcher was a handsome man, and just then looked his best. Improved health gave energy and color to his formerly sallow, listless face. The cold eyes were softer, the hard mouth suave and smiling, and about the whole man there was that indescribable something which often proves more attractive than worth or wisdom to keener-sighted women than Christie. Never had he talked better, for as if he suspected what was in the mind of one hearer, he exerted himself to be as brilliant as possible, and succeeded admirably. David never appeared so ill, for he had no clue to the little comedy being played before him and long seclusion and natural reserve unfitted him to shine beside a man of the world like Mr. Fletcher. His simple English sounded harsh after the foreign phrases that slipped so easily over the other's tongue. He had visited no galleries, seen few of the world's wonders, and could only listen when they were discussed. More than once he was right, but failed to prove it, for Mr. Fletcher skillfully changed the subject, or quenched him with a politely incredulous shrug. Even in the matter of costume, poor David was worsted, for in a woman's eyes dress has wonderful significance. Christie used to think that his suit of sober grey the most becoming man could wear, 
but now it looked shapeless and shabby beside garments which bore the stamp of paris and the gloss and grace of broadcloth and fine linen david wore no gloves mr fletcher's were immaculate david's tie was so plain no one observed it mr fletcher's elegant and faultless enough for a modern beau brummel david's handkerchief was of the commonest sort she knew that for she hemmed it herself mr fletcher's was the finest cambric and a delicate breath of perfume refreshed the aristocratic nose to which the article belonged christie despised herself as she made these comparisons and felt how superficial they were but having resolved to exalt one man at the expense of the other for her own good she did not relent till david took advantage of a pause and left them with a reproachful look that made her wish mr fletcher at the bottom of the sea when they were alone a subtle change in his face and manner convinced her that he also had been taking notes and had arrived at a favourable decision regarding herself women are quick at making such discoveries and even while she talked with him as a stranger she felt assured that if she chose she might make him again her lover here was a temptation she had longed for some new excitement and fate seemed to have put one of the most dangerous within her reach it was natural to find comfort in the knowledge that somebody loved her and to take pride in her power over one man because another did not own it in spite of her better self she felt the fascination of the hour and yielded to it half unconsciously assuming something of the dash and daring which mr fletcher had once confessed to finding so captivating in the demure governess he evidently thought so still and played his part with spirit for while apparently enjoying a conversation which contained no allusion to the past the memory of it gave piquancy to that long tete-a-tete as the first guests began to go mr fletcher's friend beckoned to him and he rose saying with an accent of regret which changed to one of entreaty as he put his question i too must go may i come again miss devon i'm scarcely more than a guest myself but mr power is always glad to see whoever cares to come replied christie rather primly though her eyes were dancing with amusement at the recollection of those love passages upon the beach next time i shall not come as a stranger but as a former may i say friend he added quickly as if emboldened by the mirthful eyes that so belied the demure lips now you forget your part and christie's primness vanished in a laugh i am glad of it for i want to ask about mrs saltonstall and the children i have often thought of the little dears and longed to see them they are in paris with their father mrs saltonstall is well i hope she died six months ago an expression of genuine sorrow came over mr fletcher's face as he spoke and remembering that the silly little woman was his sister christie put out her hand with a look and gesture so full of sympathy that words were unnecessary taking advantage of this propitious moment he said with an expressive glance and effective tone i am all alone now you will let me come again certainly if it can give you pleasure she answered heartily forgetting herself in pity for his sorrow mr fletcher pressed her hand with a grateful thank you and wisely went away at once leaving compassion to plead for him better than he could have done it for himself leaning back in her chair christie was thinking over this interview so intently that she started when david's voice said close beside her shall i disturb you if i say good-night i thought you were not going to say it at all she answered rather sharply I've been looking for a chance, but you were so absorbed with that man I had to wait. Considering the elegance of that man, you don't treat him with much respect. I don't feel much. 
"'What brought him here, I wonder? A French salon is more in his line. "'He came to see Mr. Power, as everyone else does, of course. "'Don't dodge, Christy. You know he came to see you.' "'How do you like him?' she asked, with treacherous abruptness. "'Not particularly so far. "'But if I knew him, I dare say I should find many good traits in him.' "'I know you would,' said Christy warmly, not thinking of Fletcher, "'but of David's kindly way of finding good in everyone.' He must have improved since you saw him last, for then, if I remember rightly, you found him lazy, cross, selfish, and conceited. Now, David, I never said anything of the sort, began Christie, wondering what possessed him to be so satirical and short with her. Yes, you did, last September, sitting on the old apple tree the morning of your birthday. What an inconvenient memory you have! Well, he was all that then, but he is not an invalid now, and so we see his real self. I also remember that you gave me the impression that he was an elderly man. Isn't forty elderly? He wasn't forty when you taught his sister's children. No, but he looked older than he does now, being so ill. I used to think he would be very handsome with good health, and now I see I was right, said Christie, with a feigned enthusiasm, for it was a new thing to tease David, and she liked it. But she got no more of it, for just then the singer began to sing to the select few who remained, and every one was silent. Leaning on the high back of Christie's chair, David watched the reflection of her face in the long mirror, for she listened to the music with downcast eyes, unconscious what eloquent expressions were passing over her countenance. She seemed a new Christie to David, in that excited mood, and as he watched her he thought— she loved this man once, or he loved her, and to-night it all comes back to her. How will it end? So earnestly did he try to read that altered face that Christie felt the intentness of his gaze, looked up suddenly, and met his eyes in the glass. Something in the expression of those usually serene eyes now darkened and dilated with the intensity of that long scrutiny surprised and troubled her, and scarcely knowing what she said, she asked quickly, "'Who are you admiring?' not myself. I wonder if you'd think me vain if I asked you something that I want to know, she said, obeying a sudden impulse. Ask it, and I'll tell you. Am I much changed since you first knew me? Very much. For the better or the worse? The better, decidedly. Thank you, I hoped so. But one never knows how one seems to other people. I was wondering what you saw in the glass." A good and lovely woman, Christy. How sweet it sounded to hear David say that, so simply and sincerely that it was far more than a mere compliment. She did not thank him, but said softly as if to herself, So let me seem until I be, and then sat silent, so full of satisfaction in the thought that David found her good and lovely, she could not resist stealing a glance at the tell-tale mirror to see if she might believe him. She forgot herself, however, for he was off guard now, and stood looking away with brows knit, lips tightly set, and eyes fixed, yet full of fire, his whole attitude and expression that of a man intent on subduing some strong impulse by a yet stronger will. It startled Christie, and she leaned forward, watching him with breathless interest till the song ceased, and with the old impatient gesture David seemed to relapse into his accustomed quietude. It was the wonderful music that excited him, that was all, thought Christie. Yet when he came round to say good-night, the strange expression was not gone, and his manner was not his own. "'Shall I ask if I may come again?' he said, imitating Mr. Fletcher's graceful bow, with an odd smile. 
"'I let him come because he has lost his sister and is lonely,' began Christie, but got no further, for David said good-night abruptly, and was gone without a word to Mr. Power. "'He's in a hurry to get back to his kitty,' she thought, tormenting herself with feminine skill. "'Never mind,' she added with a defiant sort of smile. "'I've got my Philip, handsomer and more in love than ever, if I'm not deceived. I wonder if he will come again.' Mr. Fletcher did come again, and with flattering regularity for several weeks, evidently finding something very attractive in those novel gatherings. Mr. Power soon saw why he came, and as Christie seemed to enjoy his presence the good man said nothing to disturb her, though he sometimes cast an anxious glance toward the recess where the two usually sat, apparently busy with books or pictures, yet by their faces showing that an undercurrent of deeper interest than art or literature flowed through their intercourse. Christie had not deceived herself, and it was evident that her old lover meant to try his fate again, if she continued to smile upon him as she had done of late. He showed her his sunny side now, and very pleasant she found it. The loss of his sister had touched his heart, and made him long to fill the place her death left vacant. Better health sweetened his temper, and woke the desire to do something worth the doing, and the sight of the only woman he had ever really loved reawakened the sentiment that had not died, and made it doubly sweet. Why he cared for Christie he could not tell, but he never had forgotten her, and when he met her again with that new beauty in her face, he felt that time had only ripened the blithe girl into a deep-hearted woman, and he loved her with a better love than before. His whole manner showed this, for the half-careless, half-condescending air of former times was replaced by the most courteous respect, a sincere desire to win her favor, and at times the tender sort of devotion women find so charming. Christie felt all this, enjoyed it, and tried to be grateful for it in the way he wished, thinking that hearts could be managed like children, and when one toy is unattainable, be appeased by a bigger or a brighter one of another sort. I must love someone, she said, as she leaned over a basket of magnificent flowers, just left for her by Mr. Fletcher's servant, a thing which often happened now. Philip has loved me with a fidelity that ought to touch my heart. Why not accept him and enjoy a new life of luxury, novelty, and pleasure? All these things he can give me, all these things are valued, admired, and sought for, and who would appreciate them more than I? I could travel, cultivate myself in many delightful ways, and do so much good. No matter if I was not very happy, I should make Philip so, and have it in my power to comfort many poor souls. That ought to satisfy me, for what is nobler than to live for others? The idea attracted her, as it does all generous natures. She became enamored of self-sacrifice, and almost persuaded herself that it was her duty to marry Mr. Fletcher, whether she loved him or not, in order that she might dedicate her life to the service of poorer, sadder creatures than herself. But in spite of this amiable delusion, in spite of the desire to forget the love she would have in the love she might have, and in spite of the great improvement in her faithful Philip, Christie could not blind herself to the fact that her head, rather than her heart, advised the match. She could not conquer a suspicion that, however much Mr. Fletcher might love his wife, he would be something of a tyrant, and she was very sure she never would make a good slave. In her cooler moments, she remembered that men are not puppets, to be moved as a woman's will commands, and the uncertainty of being able to carry out her charitable plans made her pause to consider whether she would not be selling her liberty too cheaply, 
if in return she got only dependence and bondage along with fortune and a home. So tempted and perplexed, self-deluded and self-warned, attracted and repelled was poor Christie that she began to feel as if she had got into a labyrinth without any clue to bring her safely out. She longed to ask advice of some one, but could not turn to Mrs. Sterling. And what other woman friend had she except Rachel, from whom she had not heard for months? As she asked herself this question one day, feeling sure that Mr. Fletcher would come in the evening, and would soon put his fortune to the touch again, the thought of Mrs. Wilkins seemed to answer her. "'Why not?' said Christie. "'She is sensible, kind, and discreet. She may put me right, for I'm all in a tangle now with doubts and fears, feelings and fancies. I'll go and see her. That will do me good, even if I don't say a word about my weariments, as the dear soul would call them.' Away she went, and fortunately found her friend alone in the setting-room, darning away at a perfect stack of socks as she creaked comfortably to and fro in her old rocking-chair. "'I was just wishing someone would drop in. It's so kind of lonesome with the children to school and Adelaide asleep. How be you, dear?' said Mrs. Wilkins, with a hospitable hug and a beaming smile. "'I'm worried in my mind, so I came to see you,' answered Christie, sitting down with a sigh. "'Bless your dear heart, what is to pay? Free your mind, and I'll do my best to lend a hand.' The mere sound of that hearty voice comforted Christie, and gave her courage to introduce the little fiction under which she had decided to defraud Mrs. Wilkins of her advice. So she helped herself to a very fragmentary blue sock, and a big needle, that she might have employment for her eyes as they were not so obedient as her tongue, and then began in as easy a tone as she could assume. "'Well, you see, a friend of mine wants my advice on a very serious matter, and I really don't know what to give her.' It is strictly confidential, you know, so I won't mention any names, but just set the case before you, and get your opinion, for I have great faith in your sensible way of looking at things. Thank you, dear, you're welcome to my opinion, if it's worth anything. Be these folks you tell of young? asked Mrs. Wilkins, with evident relish for the mystery. No, the woman is past thirty and the man most forty, I believe, said Christie, darning away in some trepidation at having taken the first plunge. "'My patience ain't the creature old enough to know her own mind. "'For I suppose she's the one with the quandary,' exclaimed Mrs. Wilkins, "'looking over her spectacles with dangerously keen eyes. "'The case is this,' said Christie, in guilty haste. "'The creature is poor and nobody, the man rich and of good family, "'so you see it's rather hard for her to decide.' "'No, I don't see nothing of the sort,' returned blunt Mrs. Wilkins. "'If she loves the man, take him. If she don't, give him the mitten and done with it.' "'Money and friends and family ain't much to do with the matter, according to my view. "'It's just a plain question betwixt them two. "'If it takes much settling, they'd better let it alone. "'She doesn't love him as much as she might, I fancy. "'But she is tired of grubbing along alone. "'He is very fond of her and very rich. "'And it would be a fine thing for her in a worldly way, I'm sure.' "'Oh, she's going to marry for a living, is she? "'Well, now, I'd rather one of my girls should grub the worst kind all their days than do that.' "'Howsoever, it may suit some folks, if they ain't got much heart, "'and is contented with fine clothes, nice fiddles, and handsome furniture. "'Selfish, cold, silly kind of woman might get on, I dare say, "'but I shouldn't think any friend of yourn would be one of that sort.' "'But she might do a great deal of good, "'and make others happy, even if she was not so herself. "'She might. "'But I doubt it. "'For money got that way wouldn't prosper well. 
miserable folks ain't half so charitable as happy ones, and I don't believe five dollars from one of them would go half so far or be half so comforting as a kind word straight out of a cheerful heart. I know some thinks that is a dreadful smart thing to do, but I don't. And if any one wants to go a-sacrificing herself for the good of others, there's better ways of doing it than startin' with a lie in her mouth. Mrs. Wilkins spoke warmly, for Christie's face made her fiction perfectly transparent, though the good woman with true delicacy showed no sign of intelligence on that point. "'Then you wouldn't advise my friend to say yes?' "'Sakes alive, no. I'd say to her, as I do to my younger sisters, when their court in time come. Just be sure you're right as to their being love enough. Then go ahead, and the Lord will bless you.' "'Did they follow your advice?' "'They did, and both is prospering in different ways.' gusty she found she was well on it for love so she married though samuel buck was poor and they're happy as can be a workin up together same as leisha and me did addie she calculated she wasn't satisfied somehow so she didn't marry though james miller was well off and she's kept stiddy to her trade and ain't never repented there's a sight said and writ about such things continued mrs wilkins rambling on to give christie time to think but I've an idea that women's hearts is to be trusted if they ain't been taught all wrong. Just let them remember that they take a husband for worse as well as better, and there's a sight of worse in this tryin' world for some on us, and be ready to do their part patient and faithful, and I ain't a grain afraid but what they'll be fetched through, always providin' they love the man and not his money. There was a pause after that last speech, and Christie felt as if her perplexity was clearing away very fast, for Mrs. Wilkins' plain talk seemed to show her things in their true light, with all the illusions of false sentiment and false reasoning stripped away. She felt clearer and stronger already, as if she could make up her mind very soon when one other point had been discussed. I fancy my friend is somewhat influenced by the fact that this man loved and asked her to marry him some years ago. He has not forgotten her, and this touches her heart more than anything else. It seems as if his love must be genuine to last so long, and not to mind her poverty, want of beauty, and accomplishments, for he is a proud and fastidious man. I think well of him for that, said Mrs. Wilkins approvingly, but I guess she's worth all he gives her, for there must be something pretty genuine in her to make him overlook her lacks and hold on so steady. I don't alter her side of the case one might, though, for love is love, and if she ain't got it, he'd better not take gratitude instead, but sheer off and leave her for somebody else. Nobody else wants her, broke from Christie, like an involuntary cry of pain. Then she hid her face by stooping to gather up the avalanche of hosiery which fell from her lap to the floor. She can't be sure of that, said Mrs. Wilkins cheerily, though her spectacles were dim with sudden mist. I know there's a mate for her somewheres so she'd better wait a spell and trust in Providence. It wouldn't be so pleasant to see the right one come along after she'd went and took the wrong one in a hurry, would it? Waitin' is always safe, and time needn't be wasted in frettin' or bewailin', for the Lord knows there's a sight of good work suffering to be done, and a single woman has the best chance at him. I've accomplished one good work at any rate, and small as it is, I feel better for it. Give this sock to your husband." and tell him his wife sets a good example both by precept and practice to other women married or single thank you very much both for myself and my friend who shall profit by your advice said christie feeling that she had better go before she told everything i hope she will returned mrs wilkins as her guest went away with a much happier face than the one she brought and if i know her which i think i do she'll find that cynthia wilkins ain't far from right if her experience is good for anything
added the matron with a sigh and a glance at a dingy photograph of her leisha on the wall and a sigh that seemed to say there had been a good deal of worse in her bargain though she was too loyal to confess it something in christie's face struck mr fletcher at once when he appeared that evening he had sometimes found her cold and quiet often gay and capricious usually earnest and cordial with a wistful look that searched his face and both won and checked him by its mute appeal seeming to say wait a little till i have taught my heart to answer as you wish to-night her eyes shunned his and when he caught a glimpse of them they were full of a soft trouble her manner was kinder than ever before and yet it made him anxious for there was a resolute expression about her lips even when she smiled and though he ventured upon allusions to the past hitherto tacitly avoided she listened as if it had no tender charm for her being thoroughly in earnest now mr fletcher resolved to ask the momentous question again without delay david was not there and had not been for several weeks another thorn in christie's heart though she showed no sign of regret and said to herself it is better so his absence left fletcher master of the field and he seized the propitious moment will you show me the new picture mr powers spoke of it but i do not like to trouble him with pleasure and christie led the way to a little room where the newly arrived gift was placed she knew what was coming but was ready and felt a tragic sort of satisfaction in the thought of all she was relinquishing for love of david no one was in the room but a fine copy of michelangelo's fates hung on the wall looking down at them with weird significance they look as if they would give a stern answer to any questioning of ours mr fletcher said after a glance of affected interest they would give a true one i fancy answered christie shading her eyes as if to see the better i'd rather question a younger fairer fate hoping that she will give me an answer both true and kind may i christie i will be true but i cannot be kind it cost her much to say that yet she did it steadily though he held her hand in both his own and waited for her words with ardent expectation not yet perhaps but in time when i have proved how sincere my love is how entire my repentance for the ungenerous words you have not forgotten i wanted you then for my own sake now i want you for yourself because i love and honour you above all women i tried to forget you but i could not and all these years have carried in my heart a very tender memory of the girl who dared to tell me that all i could offer her was not worth her love i was mistaken began christie finding this wooing much harder to withstand than the other no you were right i felt it then and resented it but i owned it later and regretted it more bitterly than i can tell i am not worthy of you i never shall be but i've loved you for five years without hope and i'll wait five more if in the end you will come to me christie i need you very much if mr fletcher had gone down upon his knees and poured out the most ardent protestations that ever left a lover's lips it would not have touched her as it did that last little appeal uttered with a break in the voice that once was so proud and was so humble now forgive me she cried looking up at him with real respect in her face and real remorse smiting her conscience forgive me i have misled you and myself i tried to love you i was grateful for your regard touched by your fidelity and i hoped i might repay it but i cannot i cannot why such a hard question she owed him all the truth yet how could she tell it she could not in words but her face did for the colour rose and burned on cheeks and forehead with painful fervour her eyes fell and her lips trembled as if endeavouring to keep down the secret that was escaping against her will a moment of silence as mr fletcher searched for the truth and found it 
Then he said with such sharp pain in his voice that Christie's heart ached at the sound, I see, I am too late. Yes. And there is no hope? None. Then there is nothing more for me to say but good-bye. May you be happy. I shall not be. I, I have no hope. I only try to be true to you and to myself. Oh, believe it, and pity me as I do you. As the words broke from Christie, she covered up her face, bowed down with the weight of remorse that made her long to atone for what she had done by any self-humiliation. Mr. Fletcher was at his best at that moment, for real love ennobles the worst and weakest while it lasts, but he could not resist the temptation that confession offered him. He tried to be generous, but the genuine virtue was not in him. He did want Christie very much, and the knowledge of a rival in her heart only made her the dearer. I'm not content with your pity, sweet as it is. I want your love, and I believe that I might earn it if you would let me try. You are all alone, and life is hard to you. Come to me and let me make it happier. I'll be satisfied with friendship till you can give me more. He said this very tenderly, caressing the bent head while he spoke, and trying to express by tone and gesture how eagerly he longed to receive and cherish what that other man neglected. Christie felt this to her heart's core, and for a moment longed to end the struggle, say take me and accept the shadow for the substance. But those last words of his vividly recalled the compact made with David that happy birthday night. How could she be his friend if she was Mr. Fletcher's wife? She knew she could not be true to both, while her heart reversed the sentiment she then would owe them. David's friendship was dearer than Philip's love, and she would keep it at all costs. These thoughts flashed through her mind in the drawing of a breath, and she looked up, saying steadily in spite of wet eyes and still burning cheeks, "'Hope nothing. Wait for nothing from me. I will have no more delusions from either of us. It is weak and wicked, for I know I shall not change. Some time we may venture to be friends, perhaps, but not now. Forgive me, and be sure I shall suffer more than you for this mistake of mine.' When she had denied his suit before, he had been ungenerous and angry, for his pride was hurt and his will thwarted. Now his heart bled and hope died hard, but all that was manliest in him rose up to help him bear the loss, for this love was genuine and made him both just and kind. His face was pale with the pain of that fruitless passion, and his voice betrayed how hard he strove for self-control, as he said hurriedly, "'You need not suffer.' This mistake has given me the happiest hours of my life, and I am better for having known so sweet and true a woman. God bless you, Christie. And with a quick embrace that startled her by its suddenness and strength, he left her, standing there alone before the three grim fates. End of chapter 14 Recording by Wendy in Utah This has been a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org.